But you might have guessed the scripture lesson today is about the wise men. We will now hear it read as it appears in the Gospel of Matthew, second chapter, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, as we gather on this first Sunday of the new year, fill us with hope. And may all the words and gestures and skits and music and prayers of this service be lifted to you give you glory, and edify your people for service. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In December of 1984, I'd been preaching for a few years, and I was an associate pastor in a large church in West Texas, so I got to preach about five or six times a year. Along the way, I had encountered T.S. Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi. And I decided to use it for an Advent sermon in early December of that year. Incorporating that poem into the sermon was the first time I recall being aware of how powerful a poem can be about a text or an event or a person in the Bible, especially when the poet or the author is able to get inside the skin of one of the characters. So I've decided to revisit that poem as we follow the journey of the wise men or magi to the place where Jesus was born on this day before Epiphany, 
the day on which their journey is remembered. So first, a brief little background to the poem, as if you're in freshman English class or language arts or whatever it's called now. Um, T.S. Eliot was one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. He was a classically trained literary scholar, and in 1927, at age 39, he converted to Christianity through the Anglican Church. The Journey of the Magi was the first poem that he published after his conversion. Now, the poem is told through the voice of one of the Magi, and it's told many years after the journey, near the end of the the Magus' life. His reflections on why he followed the star to the place where the Messiah was born are mixed and profound. The Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of year for a journey and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on the slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices, a hard time we had of it. At the, end, we, at the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying, this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and water mill beating against the darkness and three trees on the low sky and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information. And so we continued, and arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you might say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I'd seen birth and death. But it thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death. 
our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Now, initially, this poem attracts our attention because our image of the Magi are stately men riding upright on camels, camels moving slowly but surely across the desert following a bright star in the sky. But what Eliot allows us to see is that their initial journey was not only difficult physically, but was filled with doubt. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of year for such a journey. And as they travel across the desert, they endure physical hardship. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And naturally, they think about better times. The summer palaces on the slopes, the terraces, the silken girls bringing sherbet. And then they contrast that with the view before them and the company of the people in which they are riding, the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters. But perhaps more than these physical hardships is the hardship of doubt. Voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. In the second stanza, things begin to look up a bit for these journeying magi. Dawn breaks. They come to a temperate valley with the smell of vegetation. There's a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness. Signs of industry, commerce, civilization, other human beings. But soon other darker sights come into view. Three trees on the low sky. The old white horse galloping in the meadow. Vine leaves over the door tavern. Hands dicing for pieces of silver. Feet kicking empty wine stands. People versed in scripture will recognize the symbolism of these sites. Three trees, three crosses. The white horse of the apocalypse. I am the vine, you are the branches. Judas' betrayal of Christ for 30 shekels of silver. Roman soldiers gambling for his garment as he is hanging on the cross. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. As the Magi get closer to the birth of Christ, you see these images and symbols of his life, teaching, suffering, death, resurrection, and promised return all come into play. Eliot is saying that we cannot visit the manger, beholding the beauty and the sentimentality and the joy of the birth of Christ. We cannot visit the manger without being cognizant as well 
of the cross. We cannot behold the death without holding fast to the resurrection as well. As the third stanza opens, years have passed. The old magus is nearing the end of his days. He is reflecting on why he went on this journey, what he saw, and what it meant for him over the course of his life. I would do it again, he says, but set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? Then he reflects, I'd seen birth and death, but I had thought that they were different. But instead he realizes that this birth is different from any other birth that he has seen. For this birth also involves a death. What the old magus realizes is that accepting the birth of Jesus as the birth of the Messiah, as the birth of the Savior, as the birth of God with us, means walking away from, giving up, allowing to die certain things in our lives. Certain assumptions about what is right and wrong, about what is good and what is just. Certain images and understandings we have of who we are. Certain images and understandings we have of the way the world is. Certain practices that we have adopted or avoided. Certain scars. Angers. We have carried or grudges that we have borne. The birth of Christ to us, within us, impacting us in ways we've never before conceived is a beautiful and welcome thing. I would do it again, the Magus says. But accepting his birth also involves a death. A death to old ways of doing things, old ways of seeing, old ways even of being. The past is finished and gone, the Apostle Paul later writes. Everything has become fresh and new. Once the Magus had given his life over to the Christ whose birth he has beheld, he describes what comes next. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease there in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. My friends, the more significant the Messiah becomes for us, the more we realize that there are places we used to fit in where we no longer fit in. There are kingdoms we used to visit that don't seem quite as royal or lavish as they once did, or whose royalty and lavishness just don't seem quite as important to us as it once did. In fact, returning home from beholding the birth of the Messiah, 
we sometimes feel that we are in the midst of an alien people clutching their gods. The last line of the poem is worthy of a separate reflection. I should be glad of another death, the Magus says. Now, I have listened to recordings of Eliot reading the poem and of some of his contemporaries reading it as well. All of them seem to end on a quiet, somber note, understandable as they are contemplating death. But their tone and mood seems less hopeful than I know I want it to be if circumstances place me in a position to contemplate my own death. Now, it's not really up to the preacher or the poet to say what mood we should be in as we face our death. I've known people, and you probably have as well, who know that the end is near and who have come to a beautiful, peaceful acceptance of that reality. I've known people who are just tired and beaten down by life and just want it to be all over with. I've known people whose physical suffering or mental suffering or emotional suffering is tremendous and want their suffering to come to an end. I've known people who brought it to an end themselves. And I've also known people who believe that the life to come is so beautiful and full that they cannot If someday I'm afforded the opportunity to contemplate my own death, I can't say that I know where I will fall on this scale, nor certainly the circumstances that may or may not even allow such contemplation. But I do know, as, Eliot, as Eliot's poem says in so many ways, that as a person of faith, I live in two worlds, heaven and earth, church and and society, the life to come, and the life here and now. I know I don't fully fit in either of these worlds, and that's okay. But I have enough joy in this life to want to keep going while I still trust that what lies on the other side will be even richer. So I'm not sure I would have ended the poem the way Eliot ended it, uh, but it's his poem, and he's a pretty good poet, and he can enter it, end it like he wants. But he has given us a poem through which we can draw closer to God, through which we can come to a greater understanding of Jesus Christ that takes us beyond just the manger and through which we can be led by the Spirit to grow wise in. And for that I am thankful. Amen.